morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. <laughs> God, thank you for today. Thank you for all the blessings in our lives. Especially this blessing of life. You have given it to us for a reason and for a purpose. So we ask for your wisdom and your understanding and your strength to fulfill the purpose you've given us. You are our God and our protector, holder of all truths. We worship you together in fellowship. Amen.
This is uh, Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress, or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And Father, I thank you for your love. God, we exist as a church because of your love. Outside of the death and resurrection of your Son, we are nothing, God. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are above all else on this earth to be most pitied if Christ is not raised. So all of it hinges on the revelation, revelation of your love. But we put our trust and our faith in our King. We know that you're completely present in this time, God. And I pray that as we get into your word this morning that you would reveal to us in the new facet the character of your love, God, as we look in to what it means that you say that you are love itself. Lord, I pray that you would just uh, speak to our hearts and give us a revelation of the gospel in Jesus' name. And Father, for all the teachers who are teaching our kids, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in those rooms, that you would give the teachers strength as they pour out words to speak truth, that they would feel your love in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys are visiting this morning, we're very happy you're here. If you want to know what's going on in Friends, you can check it out in your bulletin. At this time, we're going to dismiss Kids to Kids Church. And if you don't have kids, you can just stand with us. We're going to continue to worship. Thanks for being here.
Amen. Well, welcome to Friends Church. Man, I'm just blinded up here. It's okay. Thanks, man. I have a few announcements I want to make you aware of before we get in today. Um, so let me just start them off top before I forget them. And then make a lot of people angry. So, uh, first off, um, today, I mentioned it last week, but we're going to be doing a parent meeting for anybody that is going to be a part of Young and Company. Uh, if your student is coming, we ask that you would join us today uh, after the service in room 103 for lunch. Uh, and I'll be sharing the vision of why we're deconstructing youth group and what we're going to be doing this year um, in the midst of that change. So... If you can make it, it's just going to be right after the service, 1230. Um, Young and Company is going to be having our first kickoff on Wednesday night from 6 to 8 at the church. If you are in junior high or high school, please come. We're going to be doing a crud wars. We have uh, trash cans full of mashed potatoes, which may or might not cause ruckus, but uh, it'll be good. We're going to be just doing a bunch of really disgusting game. So wear clothes that you want to destroy. Um, for you students, if you bring friends that have never been, the person who brings the most friends, you win a $250 pair of Beats headphones. So that'll give you some incentive to come. And then uh, we're doing gift cards and stuff through the night. So just a really fun night to kick it off. And um, yeah, so come, please share it with your friends. And then on Friday night, or Friday, I should say, from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m., we're doing the Kids' Day at Alaska Land. I can't call it Pioneer Park. It's Pioneer Park, but Alaska Land. Thank you. Um, I know. Um, so that is going to be from 4 to 8. We're giving away free train rides, carousel rides. Uh, there's just going to be a huge event going on for the community, and Kathy needs a lot more help. So call the office this week and say that you would pitch in to help make this a success. Um, I think it's going to be an awesome time. They've been really pouring into making this successful. And thank you for every person that helped out. Uh, yesterday we did the rummage sale at the church, and it was super successful. So many people brought stuff in. Kayla just worked and worked and worked. That girl is just, yeah. I mean, she did a really, really good job leading that up. Thank you, Kayla. And every person that came on Friday night, there was people here late, Saturday super early, and they stayed late. So thank you for all of that. I didn't get the numbers of how much we made for the community day, but I'll get that for you guys. So, all right. And remind me, we've got to clear out the chairs after the service for Young and Company on Wednesday if I don't say anything. Thank you. Okay, so with that note on hand, let's uh, go ahead and do the offering, and then we'll uh, get into the word. So, Father, I thank you for who you are. Lord, I thank you, God, that you are so outside of us, that you are so beyond us, that in your word you say it perfectly that uh, your ways are higher than our ways, your thoughts above ours, so much higher than ours. And, Lord, I pray that today we would just get a glimpse of the revelation of who you are as we get into your word. Lord, we thank you for every person that pours out for this body that you brought together. And, God, I pray that, um, as we just continue to knit our lives together, that you would be glorified, that you would be revealed, that you would strengthen us as we uh, live as living testimonies of who you are. 
Um, Lord, and for all the people that pour out their time and their money and their sweat and energy into uh, this church that you've given us, Lord, we just pray that you would be honored in all of it and glorified above all else as people give this morning, that it would be further for the purpose of your kingdom and that it would be, uh, yeah, that it would just make your name great in this valley and in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. So... So last week, we talked about the offense of the gospel. Um, I don't always do it, but I went back last week and listened to the message just because I wanted to hear what I said. That was kind of offensive. <laughs> um, man, I think uh, the good thing is, is that I'm not, I'm not afraid of offending you guys, but just know that it's always done out of love. Uh, because I think we live in this, this age where leaders in the churches especially are so afraid of being so politically correct that we're not biblically correct. And if this world is about not what's finite but what's infinite, then we really have to get on board with understanding where do we fit in the midst of this? Where is our convictions at? Where is truth at? And what dictates what we believe? Is it our own emotions? Is it things that we are offended of? Or is it the truth of the gospel? So... In the midst of our offense coming to the gospel, today I want to flip to the other side of that offense, which is our salvation, um, and really look at what it means that God is love. Um, and I'll be honest with you guys, as much as I had a hard time, I mean, having four boys and trying to sermon prep is destroying my world, so I'm learning how to do that. But last week was difficult week, uh, just prepping and this week is even harder because I'm going to try in human words to describe to you the love of God that transcends all knowledge. So it's like, good luck, buddy. Uh, and it's not going to be, I'm not going to be doing this big overview. We're not going to be looking at all the facets. I can't talk about it. We'd be here way too long and you'd all be sleeping. But... God has given me one specific avenue and revelation of his love that I really think is critical for this time, specifically for our church, that I really want to press on today. And I think it, it has huge implications to how we should be walking as a church, how we should be viewing things in culture. So just know that it's going to be brief, but I think it's where we need to be. We're going to be coming back to the cross hopefully every week until we all die. So we're going to be in this a lot more. But, you know, when I was thinking about this sermon this week, um, this thought hit me I was, as I was riding around town. We had to buy a new car because our family's gotten bigger. And I, I've never had a vehicle that's had Bluetooth-like phone calls in it before. So I just press a button on my steering wheel. I know I sound like I'm not with the times. And it says, who do you want to call? And I say, Ghostbusters. I'm just kidding. I told that joke at the first service too, but I couldn't help it. No, but uh, so I'm like, no, I want to call my wife. Uh, and so I'm talking to Laura on the phone. And this thought just hit me that my boys think this is completely normal. Like there is not a single thing within them that is even in awe or even curious or like, well, that's pretty cool. And I'm talking Bluetooth over, or over a wireless phone through a speaker and a microphone that's built into a car going 55 miles an hour down the road. And it's just like, yeah, whatever. You know, like we've become so technological in this day. I remember when I was in high school, I had one of those phones that had, was 
black and white screens, and I used to go to work and pretend to work and play that snake game where it eats the apple and just keeps getting bigger and bigger. That was the, that was, that was the jam back then. So, Or even the first phone we got, I'm pretty sure there was this big block phone, and you could only call 911 or the house, or if a robber came in, you could beat him with it like a billy club. Um, but we were in awe of that thing when it came out. And now we live in a day, Lexus, I don't know if you guys saw this on YouTube, uh, last week they just released a video showing their hoverboard they just made. Like it's a literal skateboard hoverboard. They bring it to a skate park and these guys are going down these half pipes and quarter pipes and on handrails on a hoverboard. It's going over water. It's real. Go check it out. It's pretty darn cool. And we've just gotten crazy with this world. We live in crazy times. I mean, Apple, when they came out with a new watch, for whatever reason, they decided to, you can send the pulse of your heartbeat to somebody else. I'm like, how is that relevant at all? Like, what does that do for me? It's like, hey, my phone, I just got my new a- Apple watch. Yeah, I can send you my pulse. It's like, stay away from me, creepo. Like, I don't want your pulse. I have my own. We have drones that are delivering mail and getting shot down by cowboys. Amazon is trying to move that whole thing. But, you know, we live in a highly modernized culture, not only technologically, but psychologically. We have all of these beliefs and all of these things that we think uh, we know that what human beings are. We boil it down to an art where now human beings are just another animal that can be just strung down to a DNA and we can pick and choose whatever we want. And if we don't like it, a part of that DNA, we'll just take it out and we can decide, you know, in the womb whether or not life is worth keeping. And I mean, we've just gotten so far in the scope of our, our thinking and our technology and everything. And, it, and in the midst of all of that, there's this crazy truth that we find ourselves in that David Myers calls the American paradox. And honestly, it's not unique to America because it happens in pretty much any prosperous place on earth right now. But what is the paradox, he says? It's this. Never have we had so much, and yet we have so very little. Never have we had so many choices, more easily accessible education, more freedoms, more affluence, more sophisticated appliances. I went to Lowe's last week, and they had this whole wall that was just dedicated to a thermostat. I'm like, why? Just turn up the heat and leave your house. But no, I can look at it Bluetooth and check my... I mean, it's just like, I don't, even, I don't even know. But he goes on. Better cars, better appliances, better houses, more comforts, better, better health care. That's debatable. Um, and this is one side of the paradox that he talks about. And on the other side is this. That by every measure in this nation, never have we seen depression, depression at a more prevalent stage. Never has there been, has anxiety been any higher or confusion more widespread. We are not holding our marriages together. Our children are being demoralized more than ever. Our teenagers are committing suicide at the highest rate we have ever faced. We are incarcerating more and more people than have ever been. There's more people just living together. And 53% of the kids last year were born out of wedlock. As a culture continues to fall apart, the world continues to look within itself to find solutions of how to fix ourselves. And I think this 
pays tribute all the way back to what we talked about last week in Athens. Athens was this height of human wisdom and understanding and intellect. And, and here we see Paul come in and the one thing that he notices isn't all of the incredible architecture and beauty and men's philosophy and Socrates and all of this incredible stuff. He sees the ignorance of men's heart that they have turned to 30,000 gods and yet have missed the one that's true. And today, how many gods have we turned to in this psychological world? We have transferred our nation from a moral world that stands on moral points, biblical points, to now a psychological world where what I feel dictates what is true. And we, we can't see this any higher than the way that we have evolved with our understanding of love. I mean, who doesn't love love, though, right? That burning within us for our spouse or our kids or the passions we have in life is real. The conviction is real. The heartfelt conviction we have for it is real. But in today's culture, it's leading society. Our understanding of what love is. Our grasp that we find within us and what we feel and what we know and we project out and say, because this is how I love, this is what is right. From uh, not only in our world of sexuality, but in the world of how we view everything. I mean, right now there's a movement going around that we all know about. It's very popular in our culture, the hashtag love wins. And that is pushing an agenda of the LGBT movement of so-called same-sex marriage. But even a few years ago, Rob Bell, who was at one point uh, a respected pastor, came out with a book called Love Wins where he, tr- he tries to destroy the biblical-founded doctrine of hell because in his mind he couldn't grasp the fact that his understanding of love would lead there to be a God that would ever create such a thing or that there would ever be a place. And so he just takes it out. Love is what dictates these things. And here's the danger in this because it's one thing to have personal opinions and even convictions of how I know and I express and I feel and I receive love. But it's another thing to take what I feel and I know myself and then project them up to God and say, because this is how I feel, this is who God is. There is never a point in the Bible, ever, where God gives us a place to define Him. And we need to understand that as His church. I mean, we're talking about God. We're not talking about, you know, this good guy that has good ideas. We're talking about the uncreated creator of the universe who within his own very nature defines what is good and what is truth and what is love. And to say stuff like, because this is how I feel, this is who God is, is to, very, is to contradict the very words that God describes himself to be. Like he speaks through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49 where he says, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compares to him? You? Me? Can I understand God from looking within myself? You know, when I was thinking about this and this idea of where we've come in this 
understanding of love and then these movements of love, this question just sort of burning in my heart this week is, when we say love wins, what is winning? Emotional satisfaction? Or is it truly what God reveals to be love? Is there a contradiction? And I was, and I was as I was studying this, and I was really getting into the word, um, I was reminded of a quote that C.S. Lewis said in The Four Loves. And I think he puts it so eloquently, and I want us to listen to this. This is in your outline. But this is what he says. He says, St. John saying that God is love has long been balanced in my mind against the remarks of a modern author that love ceases to be a demon only when he ceases to be a god. Which, of course, can be restated in the form that love begins to be a demon the moment he begins to be a god. This balance seems to me an indispensable safeguard. If we ignore it, the truth that God is love may slyly come to mean for us in a verse that love is God. Every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. Its voice tends to sound as if it were the will of God himself. It tells us not to count the cost. It demands of us a total commitment. It attempts to override all other claims and insinuates that any action which is sincerely done for love's sake is thereby lawful and even meritorious. That erotic love and love of one's country may thus attempt to become gods is generally uh, recognized, but family affection may do so the same, and in a very different way, friendship. Now it must be noticed that the natural loves make this blasphemous claim not when they are at their worst, but when they are at their best. Natural condition. When they are what our grandfathers called pure and noble, we may give our human loves the unconditional allegiance to which we owe only to God, and then they become gods themselves, and then they become demons, and then they will destroy us, and they will destroy themselves For natural loves that are allowed to become gods do not remain loves at all. They're still called so, but can become, in fact, complicated forms of hatred. Man, those are bold words. But I think they're true. I mean, I would even say they're offensive, but they're true. Because we have taken... Our understanding of this world from a moral standpoint of God's rule and authority and what he defines to be good and right and transferred into a a, a psychological world where emotions rule. And now love has become our God, especially in the movements that carry us. And we hear statements all the time that says, well, I just can't believe in a God that does that. Or... You know, if God is love, then God would be for this because this is love. And what we've done so unknowingly sometimes is we have pushed love to be the thing that defines what God is as opposed to God being the thing which defines love. Super dangerous. So today, amongst all of the noise and culture, amongst all the things that we are faced with, in today's society, I want us to just step back and look into the Word and say, if God is love, then what is the revelation that He gives? And does it 
line up with our understanding. Amen. When I was studying through the word this week, I was struck with all over again how other God's love is from me. It's completely other from me. Like I look at it and I'm like, okay, I understand it to an I understand it to a degree because you know I can I can feel for my wife, I can feel for my boys, I can have these feelings for things, but I don't get, God, that you, the king of the universe, would leave your throne to come to earth to be beaten and bruised and buried in the dirt for me. I don't get it. Especially in light of this humanistic world that we live in that tries to make man God. Why in the world would somebody who is a God lower himself to the dirt if he already had that status? In our humanity, it doesn't make any sense because we strive to make ourselves great in this world. It's completely other from me, which just really struck. I was laughing about it yesterday when I was in my office because I was trying to wrap my head around the gospel and bringing into context what we talked about last week about to the Jews, God says, in your, in your power, you have to become weak. In your strength, you have to become weak. And to the Greeks, he says, in your wisdom, you have to become fools. This is how the gospel is framed. This is the gospel message. The gospel message is one that calls the strong to become weak, the wise to become fools, to, leave, to receive a love that doesn't make sense so that we can live a life that we don't deserve in the presence of a God that we will never be able to wrap our heads around. That's the gospel. And yet, I say this morning with conviction the words that Paul says in Romans 1.16 that I am not ashamed of this gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteousness shall live by faith. So, through the entire word of God, we see this revelation of love begin to unfold all the way the first words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. And from that moment it was spoken, God started to unravel the very nature of his character in, in making the universe and breathing life into men. And, and we see through the Old Testament him being faithful and pouring his love onto a people so that we could start to know who he is and redeeming them out of captivity and drawing them through the desert, through the Red Sea, all of these incredible pictures of who he is, all the way to Revelations when the new earth is to come. But right in the middle, the climax of God's revelation could be found no other place than the cross. And I would say that it's not just the center of biblical truth, it's the center of eternity. We'll get into that in a little bit. But it's the cross. This is where love is defined at its peak. And so if this is what love is, let us look into the word. This is what it says in 1 John 4, 7 through 10. Beloved, let us not love one another. Let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In this, the love of God was revealed. That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. 
And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would die, dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been made been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Or John 3.16. For God so loved the world. So loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There's a few things I want to just start to unravel when we start to come to this understanding of what is God's love. One of them being that God's love cannot be found within us. God's love descends upon us. It's not as if though he's given his creatures, his creation, the ability to wrap our understanding of who he is by looking inside who he's made us to be and then saying, I got it. No, because if we could wrap our mind around God, how great would he be? You know, I was thinking about it this weekend. You know why eternity is forever? Because eternity exists for God's glory to be revealed. And God's glory takes forever to be revealed. There is no end to his glory. So therefore, it's defined within infinity. We cannot wrap our mind around this God. His love is one that descends onto us and lifts us from what we think we want and draws us into the revelations of what we truly need, which is himself. And unlike the emotional-driven, psychological world we live in today, God's love is framed in the reality of a moral world and tied explicitly to his holiness. Listen to this in Romans 5. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood... Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We were in Christ when judgment fell on him in our place. That's what the Bible says. Nothing affirms God's holiness more than this, that Christ had to die. And nothing shouts out the demands of that holiness more loudly. Nowhere are its demands seen more clearly. Indeed, these demands are so clear and so known that only a righteousness from God himself will suffice to meet them. As in, we could never meet the demand that was meant at the cross. Nowhere do we see the graciousness of His grace more clearly than when those demands are accepted by Christ on the cross, satisfied on the cross, and His righteousness is accredited to sinners. And wherever God's holiness is not swallowed up sin in Christ, it will confront sin outside of Him. That there was a cross means that there is a judgment But that there is a cross means that God's mercy towards his people is bottomless. 
The God who is righteous is the God who is a savior. The God who is holy is the God who forgives. The God who is merciful is the God who will judge. So when we come into the reality of God's love, it cannot be separated from his holiness. They work together. There was a wrath that needed to be poured out for sin. And God's holiness demanded it. But God's holiness also wanted our redemption as much as his love did. It wasn't those two things conflicting. It was them working in unison for the common goal of our salvation. And so we can see why the gospel is so offensive in this culture. It cannot be ignored that the shame that Christ despised, that the pain that he endured is what our sins deserved. And the fact that Christ paid our debt means that we have a debt that was owed. And when we look into the Gospels at the gruesome picture of the crucifixion, and we put ourselves there and say, when Christ's beard was ripped out, that's literally what God is saying my sin deserved? When the crown of thorns was put on his head and the nails were driven through his hands, that's what my sin deserves. Man, that's offensive. But, Paul says it so well in Philippians when he says, Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, in the midst of God's holy demand for justice. The payment, the price of sin, we find the revelation of God's love in, in that He Himself took it for our sake. David Wells puts it so well in his book, uh, The God in the Whirlwind. He says, Scripture's redemptive narrative has here reached its destination. The will of God conceived before the foundation of the world has now been carried out in Christ in all of its finality. The God who was with us, the one who came near, who entered our life is also the God who was for us. He was near, but in that nearness lay hidden a majesty. Indeed, everywhere we look, there is a strange conjunction that faith must hold together. In his grace, we have found his righteousness. In his mercy, a burning holiness. And on the other side of his love, there is a wrath. Strange and mysterious as was the path that took Christ from the glory of heaven to the rough wood of that cross. The outcome is clear, simple, and unmistakable. Christ took our penalty, stood in our place, and paid the price. He overcame our sin, God's wrath, and our captivity to Satan's design. We see here God's grace, his tender heart, and his boundless love. We see too at the same time his awesome burning purity. So it is that we lift up our voice in worship to sing. For he is our God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Savior of the world. I love what Tim Keller says about the gospel. He boils things down into such small chunks that you just remember them. But this is what he says. 
The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we could ever dare believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted by Christ than we could ever dare to hope. So this is love, that Christ died. Redemption is a climax of love. Not emotional satisfaction. It's not based in a psychological world. The revelation of love is based in the understanding that we live within a moral world with God as a judge who is holy and demands a price for sin. And so he extends to us a gift. For God so loved the world that he gave. For God sent. And in his sending his son, he extends to us a gift. In the blood of Christ on the cross, he extends to us a gift. When Jesus' body is ripped apart and he's buried in the grave and he raises, the power of God extends to us a gift. And the Bible says this. That because of one man's trespass, death reigns through that one man. But much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Romans 5.17. And 2 Corinthians says this. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. See, it wasn't that just Jesus paid the price for our sin. It's that Jesus paid the price for our sin and canceled the debt that's against us. That now, when we come into Christ and we repent and we believe in the, in the power of His resurrection, that we are made right in the eyes of God because Jesus has exchanged His righteousness for our sin. Righteousness in itself means morally perfect and justifiable. Righteousness is the thing that allows us to be justified, that when we come into God's presence, no longer are we separated because of our sin, but as Hebrews 4 says, we draw in with confidence to receive grace at the throne of mercy. Why? Because we have right standing with God. We are made whole with God. Yeah, I know, but I cuss all the time. You're the righteousness of God in Christ. I curse God all the time. I did it for years. I was addicted to drugs. The cross says you're the righteousness of Christ. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of what Christ has done. And this is where the gospel stands distinct among all other religions where we always try to perform our way into good works. Even in our own humanism we do. We try to build up this ladder of us trying to make our names great. And the gospel is this. No, no, no. You have to be weak. And truly, you have to be a fool. Because what I've done doesn't make sense, but it's truth. And all you've got to do is receive it as a gift. This is the gospel. And honestly, today in our churches, I think that that's where a lot of us stop. Is we come to this really cool idea that God is love, so now I don't have to go to hell, which is good. 
Um, but then we stop. The gospel is the climax of our Christianity. Yeah, I believed. I was saved. Past tense. It's like we become believers. It's like in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. In 1 Corinthians 15, this is what he says about the gospel. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, saved. By which you stand, are being saved. And by which you will be saved if you hold fast to the world, to the word. So we have past, we have present, we have future. The gospel is not the end game of Christianity. It's the beginning of the race. We have not just been saved for us to be freed from our sins and then satisfy ourselves in what we think we want. That's not what God has done. He didn't save us from our sins so that we could pursue ourselves he saved us from our sins so that we could be free from ourselves and pursue Him. And not out of duty, but out of the revelation that God is truly our satisfaction. That He is good. And how do we get there? Well, we keep pressing into the reality of His love. In the New Testament, Paul says this constantly. In fact, Paul says, whatever you do that's not out of faith is sin. Whatever you do out of that's not out of the revelation of who Christ is, is missing the point. Everything should be done in the context of God's revelation of love and our response to it. And in Galatians, he says this, whatever is, our faith works through love. That our belief, that our trust, that our pressing in, that God has already redeemed us and he's called us to new life for the sake of his glory being seen, that's now. Or John puts it like this, we know and believe the love of God for what he has for us, and we love because he first loved us. So Christian love exists only where the love of God in Christ is known and is trusted. True love exists only in the revelation of who God is and out of our overflow response of gratitude towards him. Now let me tell you why that's not works. And I've seen this in such a personal way in my life. Because last November, we had a beautiful boy come into our home in foster care. And two months ago, we had three boys come into our home. So I have four boys. And every single one of them carries this baggage of trying to protect themselves. Because this world has failed them. No three-year-old kid wants to be ripped from his home. And brought into a place he does not know. And let me tell you, the evidence and the response of a child trying to wrestle through that safety and feeling like, what am, where am I at? Will, it breaks your heart. Because in my mind, the first night there in my house, I'm saying, God. They, they need your love. They're so afraid. They don't trust me at all. And I don't blame them. But there is this beautiful thing that happens in a child. And I've seen it. 
It's my commitment to them that changes their heart and draws them into response. The first day, Bishop called me dad. I was just overwhelmed. Because the first week, I remember he pooped his pants. And when he came into the bathroom, he was shaking with fear because he didn't know what I was going to do. He was hyperventilating. He was like, (sighs) and I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You can trust me. And I think the reason we're so marginalized in our understanding of Christianity and we get on the bandwagon of emotions is that we get so satisfied with this idea that we're saved. Now we can just live in ourselves. And Christ is saying, do you not trust me? I didn't just redeem you so you could satisfy yourself. And you live your whole entire lives in this safety bubble trying to secure what you think you need to survive. And we shake and we do stupid things that are irrational that we look back on and we're like, why did we do that? Because I was just trying to do what was best for me. Just like a child does when he's coming to a home for the first time. And it's only in the Father's love that continually pushes into our hearts that we start to melt. And no longer do we look at God in fear of being like, I don't know what to do, God. I'm all alone. We say, Father. Last week, Bishop ran into my bedroom at 3 in the morning, jumped up on my bed, and snuggled into my arms. Why? Because he's trying to win my affection? Because he's trying to be legalistic and win his... No. Because he's he's responding to my commitment to love him. And it says in the word that before the foundations of the earth. Before the foundations of the earth. That it was God's perfect and foreknowledge plan. To send his son to die. Which means before life was even breathed out. He saw that we would fall away from him. And he said I will still create you. And I will save you. And if I think within myself that I have a commitment to my son. And in that small reality of a commitment, I see the way that it shapes his heart. Imagine if we truly grasped the commitment that God made to us in saying, not counting a thing to be grasped. He lowered himself to the earth for us. This is love, church. This is how we should frame our understanding of love. Love is not emotions being satisfied. It's redemptive. It's, it's righteousness reigning in our lives. It's the gift that God has given us through His death reigning in our lives. And out of that gift, we respond in incredible praise and glory. Understanding who He is and that He is good. So while the world goes around with these hashtags and these statements saying love wins, I would ask, what is winning in that? Is it human pursuit? Is it what we feel like in our psychological world will fulfill us? Or is it truly the revelation that God gave us when he sent his son to the earth? I'm not saying their intentions are even not heartfelt. We are called to love this world and give our lives for this world, but for us to stand with this world and to say, yeah, I can support you on that because this is where you're going to be satisfied. C.S. Lewis makes a really good point where he says it becomes complicated forms of hatred. 
Because you're saying in your world, of, in your psychological world, you can be satisfied in yourself, but I'm just going to stick with God. Is that loving that person? Love wins when righteousness reigns. That's what we've been called to. It's like the couple last month who came and got baptized, and I met him after they got baptized. They got married the day before, and he looked at me, and he's like, I've had, I think it was 42 or 46 years of drug addiction, and I'm free. She's like, I had 27, and I'm free. They got married on Saturday. They came into church on Sunday and got baptized. That's love winning, because that's the transforming power of the cross in, in showing itself true in people's hearts and bringing men into right standing with God and no longer having them being stuck in their sin. That should be our aim. That should be our goal. Josh, you guys want to come up? I love this verse. This is just what I want to end with you guys. Is First Peter two twenty one through twenty five. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." This world is lost. And I'm not saying the pursuit for happiness is not heartfelt. But outside of the context and the reality of God's love, this world will continue to be in this paradox that we're in. That we have so much and yet we have so little. Because we've sold out the very thing that is life itself. Father, I thank you for who you are. Lord, I pray that the words I spoke today, that even a portion of them gives people a glimpse of who you are, that you would sow into the hearts of men. God, and that we would be a church that is not afraid to talk about issues, but we'd be doing it out of a, out of a heart and compassion for this world. Not standing back, pointing our finger, but saying, what is our call in the midst of this tension? Lord, that compassion, that your heart would be our aim. You have said you've so loved the world. You so loved the world that you came. And you died for us so that we could go out. We could give our lives for you being known. God, so in the context of What drives us, Lord? I pray that our love would not be based on emotional satisfaction, but your gift of righteousness, God, that you would call us into the reality that you have so much greater things for us than the things that we pursue. And the things that we love 
They're good things, but they're not the best. Lord, that you would overwhelm us with the reality of your presence and the beauty that comes in it. Give you all the praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. After this uh, song, if you guys can just stay and help stack the chairs to the sides, I would so appreciate it. And if you want prayer, if in the last couple weeks you've been struggling through the gospel as we've been talking about it, there'll be people up here to pray with you. We'd love to talk to you guys. Thank you for being here.
Amen. You guys have a blessed week.